News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you a good sleeper or a bad sleeper? And when does bad sleep mean something more, like there's a health problem there? Some really interesting sleep research going on these days, including for people who have diseases like Parkinson's. Now with Parkinson's, as you know, mobility during the waking hours is a huge issue. But there's also a condition where people with Parkinson's have mobility, but at night, while they sleep. Just tells you how fascinating your brain actually is. Now, for more on this research, we're joined now by Dr. Ronald Postuma, who's a professor of neurology at McGill University. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. This is fascinating. Now, tell us what is going on in the brain that would allow something unusual like that happen with Parkinson's patients while they sleep. Well, probably the first step to say is that this is a, it's just a very unusual feature of Parkinson's. It's associated with Parkinson's, and it actually, the whole condition itself starts many years before. So normally when you or I dream, we're supposed to be paralyzed. We might sort of mumble a little bit. We might twitch a little bit. But people with this disorder uh, called REM sleep behavior disorder actually are capable of acting out their dreams. And so if you're dreaming that you're fighting, you'll make fighting movements. If you're dreaming that you're yelling, you'll yell, and you might have a big conversation with the person that you're dreaming uh, about. Uh, and it turns out, in fact, that this is associated with basically with Parkinson's and related disorders and nothing else. And in fact, is is commonly seen way before you actually show up in the doctor's office with Parkinson's, sometimes a decade or more before you're acting out your dreams, but actually it's your Parkinson's starting. Okay, this is fascinating. So you're saying that even if you're like, well, I don't have Parkinson's, but I do this, that's like a precursor? That's right, exactly. Uh, so you, the, the, as far as you're concerned, you're perfectly fine. Uh, right. But, you know, your spouse is saying, you know, oh, last night, my goodness, you were dreaming, uh, I don't know, whatever you were dreaming, uh, and I could hear you. And, in fact, you even hit me at one point. Um, you know, this is not sleepwalking, which, of course, many, many people do. But this is something that happens to people in their 50s and 60s, usually. Uh, and when they do it, it's, it's usually Parkinson's, uh, in fact. Okay. So can you, what is the difference, then, between somebody who does sleepwalk versus do this? Well, basically sleep, a little bit of sleep talking and sleep walking. You actually can't walk with this REM sleep behavior disorder. Uh, your, your eyes are closed. So if you, uh, if you start to take a few steps, you'll basically just hit the wall or trip over something. And that's as far as you get. Whereas sleepwalkers can even get in cars sometimes and drive them in this sort of half of sleep, half awake state. But this REM sleep behavior disorder, no, it really does feel quite different. They're, they're sort of thrashing around and seem to act out their dreams, but almost never leave the bed. Okay. Is there a way to use this information then, Dr. Pastema, for early diagnosis? Yes. Uh, so uh, we hear this uh, story, uh, you know, it's only discovered, I guess, about 30 years ago. And uh, the, the original doctor who followed these people just started to watch that, you know, oh, my goodness, you just had a sleep problem and, and now you can't move very well. Or you're having cognitive issues. Uh, and so, in fact, if we make the diagnosis now, uh, we can anticipate that the person has uh, Parkinson's uh, in the future. And unfortunately, we can't do much about it, but we certainly can keep an eye on people. And as they start to develop problems, you know, Parkinson's is pretty treatable. So there are, there are things that we can do to make people's lives better. So is there something about our brains when we sleep that will tell us about other conditions perhaps too? Like, is that something you're going to be looking at? 
Yes, so there are a few. Uh, you know, sleep problems can be associated. You know, most of the time when we're not sleeping well, for example, with insomnia, it's because we're worried about the, the day next, or, or we've gotten bad habits, or things like this. But you know, if you have a neurodegenerative problem or any neurological problem, that can affect all kinds of aspects of your sleep because sleep is a function of the brain, right? So yes, but nothing like this. Uh, REM sleep behavior disorder is really quite unique. So given all of that then, is there even such a thing as normal sleep behavior? A little bit. Yeah, you know, you can, you can, it's normal to mumble a little bit. It's normal to have a few twitches sometimes when you dream and maybe make a couple of moaning noises. What's not normal is being able to yell and scream and thrash around. And actually, that, I, I didn't answer your first question, so let me answer it. So this is one of these really cool things uh, that p- people with Parkinson's disease who sometimes have pretty advanced Parkinson's disease, uh, there were some researchers in France who would bring these patients into the clinic and they could barely talk and they could barely move and then they would notice that, hold on, they're dreaming and they're yelling articulately and they're thrashing around super fast. And they can't do that one bit in the, middle of the, in the middle of the day, but they can do it when they're sleeping. And it's this interesting thing where you can bypass some of the Parkinson movement problems when you're actually asleep. So that's the other aspect that you were mentioning at the beginning. Uh, yeah, because that, I mean, I can't even imagine what that means for Parkinson's patients is that there's something in your brain that does in some conditions allow you to bypass Parkinson's? It's kind of like that. So I think what's going on in Parkinson's is we have this signal, we have this circuit in our brain and the job of the circuit in the brain is to tell us whether to move a lot or a little bit. Uh, And you need that because if you want to say reach and grab something, you don't want to move too much. You don't want to overshoot. You don't want to flail around. You don't want to move your leg when you mean to move your arm. So we have this whole system that really focuses our movements. And in Parkinson's disease, the, the circuit goes wrong and it's basically telling you don't move. And so you think you're moving. You feel like you're supposed to move. And your brain's, you know, part of your brain's telling your body to move, but th- th- there's this big don't move signal. And that signal, apparently, that whole circuit, at least partially, goes to sleep when you go to sleep. And so the circuit's gone, so you can move. You don't move that well. You sort of thrash around a little bit. You wouldn't be able to do very coordinated things, maybe, with your hands in particular, but you can move again. And if only we could find a way to reproduce that when a person is awake, uh, that would be a big advance. Wow. Okay, so what are the next steps with your research then? Really, the most important thing that we're working on is this early stage that we, we talked about a little bit earlier. So now we're starting to use some trials of therapies to prevent Parkinson's. We don't have therapies to prevent Parkinson's disease, uh, but we're trying to get them. And so maybe what we need to be doing is identifying these people who are 10 years away from ever getting Parkinson's. And let's try the therapies now that we think might be working. And if they work in those people, well, then we can give them to the Parkinson's patients at the same time and, uh, and maybe prevent them from getting worse but it's so maybe it's so hard to to treat these conditions when the disease has been in your brain for 10 years let's let's start earlier and that's really the main thing that we want to try to be doing and there's some studies that are going to be started in the next year trying to do that in the in people with this remc behavior disorder absolutely fascinating dr postuma thank you for being with us a pleasure thank you This is Mornings with Simi. The Women's World Cup of Soccer is going to be happening later this year. And of course, so many of us are excited to see Canada compete. They are, after all, the gold medal winners from the Tokyo Olympics, right? So why are we hearing about the team being frustrated, upset, angry with Canada soccer? 
so upset that they've been taking job action. They sat out training for a couple of days last week. Now, many questions, hard questions, are being asked about the organization that runs soccer in this country, and that is Soccer Canada. Questions about what they are doing with all the money amidst this surge in popularity for the men's and women's team in this country. Joining us now to talk more about this is Joshua Cloak, staff writer at The Athletic and author of The Voyagers, Canada's Men's Soccer Team's Quest for the World Cup. Joshua, thank you for being with us this morning. Good morning. So what do we know about Canada soccer? What, like, what, who's behind this organization? Well, I mean, it is a government-funded organization that, you know, oversees all soccer activities in this country, not unlike Hockey Canada, for example, another organization that is no stranger to, to scandal as of late. Um, you know, at the top of, of Canada soccer is, is President Nick Bontis. Um, and this is a volunteer role, the president of Canada soccer should be said he's a professor at McMaster University and Earl Cochran is the general secretary and he's a longtime Canadian soccer executive. He played soccer. Um, and so he's kind of a little more deeply entrenched with the Canadian soccer community. But, you know, in terms of the organization and in terms of the, the, the questions and, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing that players, both the men's and women, you know, it should be noted they're working kind of in concert right now. There's two things I think they're they're most frustrated about. The first thing is the lack of kind of financial transparency. Um, and a lot of this stems from the fact that in 2018, Canada Soccer signed a deal with, you know, a new company called Canadian Soccer Business that would oversee media rights, sponsorship. And what that did is, is you know, funneled money approximately $3 million every year to Canada Soccer but that also ensured that you know any sponsorship revenue or any media rights money that that this company generated would go you know into this private company and not necessarily into you know Canada Soccer and the players that kind of thing. So the transparency and the details behind the deal, and this is a long deal too, by the way. It's a ten-year deal with a ten-year option afterwards. I think there are a lot of players that are asking. You know why weren't players consulted in in this deal? So I think there's some frustration there. And two, yeah, you you kind of mentioned it, the lack of money, right? There's just there was you know widespread cuts to the you know to the men's and women's national team programs recently. Um, why? I had a one, yeah, I had one men's national team player tell me this weekend that you know he heard it was fifty percent, so you know fifty percent, you know half of what this men's team, the men's and women's teams, when they have never been more popular, um, you know, that's, that's staggering. Um, why? We still don't know. And I think that's a big problem that, that has yet to be addressed. Canada soccer um, just has not done a lot of work that the people at the top of Canada soccer have not done a lot of work kind of getting out in front of the cameras, explaining their side. Um, I think there's a lot of frustration from players that, you know, these leaders are not necessarily acting like leaders you know, and explaining what needs to be done, how this money needs to be managed. Um, there's a lot of frustration. I think a lot of people assume that in terms of equal pay, that's only part of that. These are, you know, deep-rooted issues that I think people are, players have been really, really upset about for years and years and years. Um, so in terms of the why, we don't know yet why there's been, you know, this this cut and I think that's part of the problem is that Canada soccer hasn't done a good enough job explaining their rationale. Right. Now, Joshua, is it true that, that what I heard and read um, was that 
you know, when the players said, listen, we're not going to play or we're going to sit out training, we're going to be on strike. Uh, what Canada Soccer said to them was, we're going to sue you if you don't if you don't play these games. Well, because they were able to do that because, you know, that was their next course of action because Canada Soccer didn't have the legal right to strike at that point, right? Like you, you have to, they're, they're legal, you know, I guess there are hoops you have to jump through, for lack of a better term, right. um, to, to, to go on strike, right? Like, and, and that would mean not playing games. Um, I don't know. My understanding is, is they didn't have the necessary paperwork done in time to not, not participate at the She Believes Cup, which is a, you know, it's a four-team invitational tournament with Brazil, the United States, Japan that they're playing in in the United States right now. And it's a big, important World Cup, you know, preparation tournament. Um, so without the, I guess, legal right to strike, Canada Soccer could say, well, we could sue you. We just need to take a step back and understand here that you have Canada Soccer, an organization threatening to sue its own players. And, and what's important to note here, you know, these are not just a few players. You have Christine Sinclair, who, you know, is no stranger to, you know, the BC soccer community. And, and for my money is the greatest athlete, you know, to, to, to represent Canada, to play in a national yeah. team jersey. And you have her at the front of all this. You have her saying she can't continue in good conscience to represent Canada soccer. This is huge, right? This isn't one or two players upset. This is a very kind of front-facing approach from the women's national team. And you have all the players really heavy stuff on social media as well. Yeah. Um, they're really, really frustrated. And I think, you know, optically, it really hurts Canada soccer um, because the players are the ones out here kind of explaining where they're at. And I think they've done so in a pretty good way. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I think there is a lot of deep frustration and the fact that you're talking about, you know, an organization suing its players. Look, we, we know that, you know, hockey Canada has been just absolutely plagued by scandals lately and a few months ago, it felt like Canada soccer was starting to veer that way. It almost feels right now like they're on a crash course with that and that soon people are going to be talking about Canada soccer and Hockey Canada in the same breath, which if you're Canada soccer, you want to avoid that at all costs. I know, but I, f- I feel to you, Joshua, that's exactly how I was feeling when I was reading about this on the weekend. I thought, how can this organization be so tone deaf as to what is going on with the Canadian public and with their own players? Where is all the money going if soccer has never been so popular in Canada? Now, this is something to note here, and I know that you know that right now in Vancouver, you have an expansion team uh, in the Canadian Premier League um, and you, you know you, you have a team in Victoria as well. So this is a, a young league that was created in 2019, and it's growing. Canadian soccer business, and I, I don't want to get too complicated, but Canadian soccer business, that company that I mentioned before, is owned by the owners of the C teams. So effectively, the money that that this company makes by generating sponsorships for the men's and women's national teams, by generating money through media rights. That is then funneled into Canadian soccer business and these CPL teams. So it kind of helps the, the league itself grow, right? And this is a league that, again, I'm anybody listening that has been to, you know, games uh, in Victoria, for example, knows these aren't really, really well-attended games yet. They have the potential to be, but it's a young league. So this league survival 
is kind of held afloat by, you know, the CSB deal. But I think if you're the players, you're really, really frustrated because you're saying, well, we are the ones that have broken through. We yeah. are the ones that are winning gold medals that are qualifying for the World Cup. We are the now major companies across Canada care about soccer and want to invest in soccer from a sponsorship perspective. Why is that money not going to the men's and women's programs? And I think that's where a lot of the frustration lies. Oh, I would agree. Joshua, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. No problem. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. What were they? Who sent them? And what are we going to do now? How do we find out more about them? Lots of questions about these unidentified objects that are being shot down. One over uh, the Yukon that we heard about on the weekend. One over Lake Huron yesterday, too. What has the response been in Washington? Let's find out. Reggie Giacchini joins us now, our global Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. What is the American government saying about this? Well, look, the American government is not saying much, uh, and they're they're facing criticisms for that from the Republicans by not being more transparent on the information that they are getting, or at least information that they would be able to give without compromising national security. Uh, the White House uh, is fairly silent on this. We'll hear from uh, the National Security Council at the White House briefing later on. But the Pentagon came out last night uh, and simply said that these are still uh, ongoing problems, but they are ongoing um, questions without answers because they do do not understand where these are coming from, but they also don't understand how they're staying up in the air uh, and being maneuvered, especially since we heard that the one that was uh, brought down last week didn't have maneuverable pieces on it. So there are a lot of questions. I'm sure that there's a lot more being said behind a closed door, but it's not satisfying the American public nor Republicans. Right. And we do know, I guess, that these are all, they're different, right? They're not all balloons. They're, that's the thing. They're not being called balloons, save for that first one that was a, you know, a said to be a Chinese spy balloon that was downed off the coast uh, of their Carolinas. These are simply being called objects. The one that came down over uh, over the Yukon said to be cylindrical, um, you know, roughly, I believe, the size of the car, or that might have been the one in Alaska. The one yesterday was octagonal shaped, and we heard from Pentagon uh, and senior officials uh, within the administration uh, that it had strings attached to it, but it's unclear if that once contained a payload or or what that might have been. So, you know, there are so many questions as to what these actually could be. They're not all being called balloons. They're simply being called objects. But what we do understand now uh, is that the sky over North America is under increasingly um, greater amounts of scrutiny. It sure seems like that. Okay, so um, has a military said anything beyond the fact that they've been involved in some of these actions? Well, look, the military has said that, yes, they are involved, that this is a joint operation, oftentimes uh, involving NORAD. They have also not ruled out extraterrestrial um issues, uh, trying to ensure that they're leaving all options on the table here. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that this is, that this is something to do with aliens. Uh, but when you have these, these aerial phenomena that don't have any kind of link to them, uh, the Pentagon, uh, rather defense officials want to ensure that they are, uh, being incredibly cautious when it comes to discussing national security. I will point out that, uh, Beijing this morning, the foreign minister has already come out to say that none of these additional things, uh, belong to China. They are pushing back on it, saying any finger pointing damages relationships and simply works to smear China. There's a different tone coming out of uh, the United States and Canada, believing that China, possibly other adversaries, maybe Russia, could be involved with this. But there's so little information because so many of these downed objects haven't been collected yet. Okay, what about the diplomatic side of this? I know that uh, China has said, well, hey, the U.S. does this too. 
Yeah, China has said that the U.S. does this. The U.S. isn't coming out and saying, look, we do or don't do this. And China has saying that there have been more than 10 uh, drones or, or aerial objects that are U.S. owned in their airspace that they have dealt with. Again, Pentagon isn't saying anything about that, but this is straining what was already an incredibly fraught relationship between Washington and Beijing and between Ottawa uh, and Beijing. We know that last week uh, the United States uh, put bans in place when it comes to exports to try and, and go after the, the Chinese military. But ultimately, this is going to become a, a foreign policy crisis for this administration as it tries to deal with um, an increasingly aggressive China and what that could mean now, not only to the politics of this country, but to the people of the U.S. and Canada. All right. Well, thank you so much for that, Reggie. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, Global Washington correspondent, talking about the American response to these different objects that are being shot down. The only the first one, it was called really a balloon in shape. The others uh, seem to be different or have been described differently. The second one, this is the one that was over uh, the Yukon or, or the Alaska area there. They said it was shaped differently, kind of the size of a small car. Uh, and, and the levels that they are found at, too, or being shot down at are also different. Anything from 12,000 meters to 40,000 meters above ground. This is Mornings with Simi. As we've been talking about this morning, an unidentified object was shot down over part of the Yukon on Saturday. And this is after the Prime Minister said it violated Canadian airspace. So it was shot down by an American jet as part of the NORAD agreement with the United States. Now, that is the agreement where our two countries monitor this shared airspace together. This was also followed by the U.S. shooting down another object over Lake Huron on Sunday. What is going on here? So we thought, let's put this in the perspective of national security now and what lessons Canada can learn from this. So joining us now to talk about that is Vincent Rigby, a former national security and intelligence advisor here in Canada. Uh, Vincent, thank you for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. What do you make of all this? What is going on? (laughs) <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, I think the headline would probably be one of the more bizarre stories of the year. It's, uh, it's hard to, to figure out just what's happening right now. I think we have a little bit more clarity with the shoot down of the first balloon that I don't think you mentioned, but this was on February 4th off the coast of the Carolinas, where indications are that it was a Chinese surveillance balloon with some pretty high-tech, sophisticated surveillance equipment on board with a large payload. So if we're to believe American assertions, and I would suggest that those assertions probably are accurate, um, that that was a that was a spy balloon, for lack of a better term. But what happened over the weekend is truly bizarre. And right now we just have a paucity of information. We don't we don't know what these objects were. And you you quite rightly refer to them as objects. The Americans are referring to them as high altitude objects. They're not even using the words balloon. Um, so they may have been balloons, they may not have been balloons. So it's difficult to say. So again, uh, my immediate reaction is um, this is a very strange story and we're lacking information right now. What, like, there's lots also being made about the fact that this is clearly like a joint U.S. and Canadian operation with U.S. jets uh, you know, bringing this down over the Yukon. Is that part of the agreement that we have? Is that how NORAD works? Absolutely. It's a joint Canada-U.S command and it's there to protect north american airspace so you use the assets of both countries so you'll have 
Canadian CF-18 fighter aircraft. You'll have American F-22 aircraft as part of that response, in addition to a whole range of other other assets, radars, etc. But it's a binational command. So the Prime Minister stated in his tweet on Saturday, I guess it was, when the object over the Yukon was shot down, that I authorized the shootdown of this object. Um, what's very interesting is that the U.S. tweet that came out of the White House was we, the U.S. and Canada, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau had collectively decided to shoot down the aircraft. Um, because it was using U.S. assets, um, the Americans would have been very, very closely involved in the decision-making ultimately to shoot it down. But absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's now being all of these shoot downs are being considered as one of the first actions of NORAD ever to shoot down objects over North American airspace. But that's the way it was designed to work. I think it's, it's worked perfectly in that regard. Okay. So I think it's important to, to mention that too, just because there, there were people who immediately said, why are we letting you know, the United States do this? No, it used American assets, but clearly um, I think that the, the, the deal was, and I think that the prime minister may have said this in a press conference yesterday, that whichever aircraft Canadian and American that got to the object first would shoot it down. It happened to be an F-22 um, they got there first, so they shot it down. But this is consensual decision-making. Um, they're joined at the hip in that regard, and so there's there's nothing strange in the way this was conducted. All right, let's talk about, though, the way we are talking about this kind of in the public, the information that the government is giving. Clearly, they're trying to figure out what's going on here, too. Like, What would your advice be at this point if you were advising the government about how to approach this? Well, I think that before you speak out publicly, you want to make sure that you've got your facts. And so that's clearly what the prime minister and the Ministry of National Defense have been saying. Before we're going to come out and publicly state what this was all about, we, we have to recover the debris. We have to make a definitive assessment on what these what these objects were. And so um, that's why I don't think you've heard anything either on the American or the Canadian side yet, because they haven't reached that definitive conclusion as to what these objects were. Um, at the same time, with each passing day, I think the public becomes a little bit more frustrated. The information that's coming out, particularly on the American side, is very contradictory. You have a lot of U.S. congressmen and congresswomen saying things that are then contradicted by government officials, by the Defense Department and the State Department. And so um, the sooner you can get information out, the sooner you can provide some clarity, the better. But there are always going to be reasons why you don't you don't want to jump too fast and you don't want to say something that you're then going to have to contradict a little bit later and say we were wrong. So they're they're getting their facts. The military will do their job and they'll do it well in terms of assessing what this was all about. But uh, but for the public, it's a little bit of it's it's head scratching. Right. And I think everybody is saying what is going on here? I mean, all the, the, the emails and correspondence I've been having with, with, with commentators is this is this is a very odd story. It is a very odd story. And I guess complicated by the fact, as you point out, Vincent, though, that we live in different times now. You know, 20, 30, 30 years ago, they probably would have been able to do more work behind the scenes before talking publicly. Now it just feels like you're just feeding that cycle. Like news is so much more demanding today. Well, it is without without a doubt, and and so there's pressure to to say something publicly. But again, <clears throat> excuse me, I I don't think they want to jump the gun, and they want to make sure that they they have all the facts at their at their um, at uh, you know their their their, their, their fingers here to, to make sure they don't mislead the public or create even even more confu- confusion. But but you know the first balloon because it was China that raises a certain specter given 
geopolitical competition right now and the return of geostrategic rivalry. So you've got the, the, the China shadow all over it. And so that, that raises the, the political debate, especially in the United States, but in Canada as well as it should. These three over the weekend, they may not have been Chinese. They may not have been Russian. They may not have been hostile state activities. Um, they may not have even been balloons. We don't know. So this uh, this makes it even more interesting. Well, that is right because you're right. They when the first one came down, they were very, they were very talkative about it. And the fact that they're not saying as much about these last two, do you think that kind of heightens people's concerns about them? Well, it heightens their concerns or it heightens their curiosity. That's that, that that's for sure. And I think what we had in the with with the first balloon, I keep on saying the first balloon, assuming that these others are balloons and we don't know, but the first object with the Chinese came out very, very early and said, listen, um, it's one of ours. It's a, it's a balloon. They, they did not admit that, that it was a surveillance balloon. They said it was a weather balloon that had been blown off course, but it was out there. And so as soon as it's out there publicly, then you've got to, you, you've got at least a bit of a narrative. And so that was easier. These three over over the weekend um, just seem to be a different kettle of fish. Now, maybe it will turn out that one of them was a Chinese balloon. I, I, I don't know. But at this point, you just don't know. And so even to say that it's a national security issue, we don't know if it's a national security issue. The, the balloon shut down February 4th. Absolutely. Conducting espionage, um, according to the Americans, over missile silos in Montana. I mean, that's a threat to national security. These three over the weekend? I mean, it seems like one of the main reasons they shot them down was an abundance of caution, they called it. And it's because it was a potential threat to civil aviation because it was flying at a lower level than that balloon, um, that earlier balloon. So, again, there's there's the confusion. It may not even be a national security issue. Right. There's still so many questions, though. Right, Vincent? Absolutely. We'll see you in the coming days. We will. Vincent, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. That's Vincent Rigby, former National Security and Intelligence Advisor here in Canada, uh, to offices like that of the Prime Minister's office, uh, asking the questions that so many people are asking too. What is going on with all of these now objects that are being shot down by NORAD over North America? Uh, We hope to hear more today. The Prime Minister has said there will be more information forthcoming, and we will, of course, have that for you. This is Mornings with Simi. I think at this point in the year, we are all looking forward to seeing some cherry blossoms, aren't we? It means spring, and they are so beautiful. And it really, I think, brings life to people when they see that happening. They think, ah, yes, uh, warmer weather, better times are ahead. And part of that, of course, is why we celebrate with the Cherry Blossom Festival. Except now the festival needs help. Joining us now to talk about this is Michael Dove, the executive director of the Vancouver Cherry Blossom Festival. Michael, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. What's going on here? How, why do you need help? Yeah, so uh, we, uh, you know, a huge chunk of our budget is made up by corporate sponsors and foundations. Um, but the top of that ladder, the thing that we base our whole budget around every year is our presenting sponsor, you know, the main sponsor that their name goes at the top. Um, and we've been working with Cora Mendel Properties for five years. Um, and they've been an amazing partner and collaborator. Um, but they unfortunately are falling under some hard times and they filed for creditor protection last week and had to withdraw their sponsorship, which is quite late in the year for us in terms of our planning because we're only, yeah, like you said, we're only a few weeks and months away. What does that mean then for the festival for this year? Will you still be able to do it? Uh, we're having a lot of conversations. You know, I think that some some version of it, of course, will happen, um, but this is nearly 25% of our budget. 
and um, we know that there's a lot that uh, that cannot happen unless we uh, find some way to replace that money. Okay, and has there been any discussion about how? Have you reached out to any groups that could help, perhaps, or some companies that could help? Yeah, so we got the news on Thursday, um, and we've definitely been reaching out quite a bit, um, talking to our existing sponsors, talking to sponsors that uh, you know, people have made connections for us, um, really just like putting the word out there, trying to say, like, we, you know, we just don't think this can happen um, in the way that we really want it to happen. You know, we do large-scale events, um, outdoor events, which always cost a bit of money, um, and uh, we do them all for free. Um, we have one event that's ticketed, but the vast majority of our events are free. Um, and so we've started some conversations for sure, but, um, you know, we're, we're still new in this. Um, it's only been a couple of days. And um, right now we're looking at needing to come up with about seventy-five dollars to $80,000. Wow. Okay, that's steep. Now, Michael, I can't even imagine how frustrating this is, given that this would have been, what, your first year out of the pandemic where you could put on the first big festival, right? Well, we did. Um, we did have a festival last year and it was very, you know, it was a couple weeks leading up to it that we weren't sure exactly what would happen and how much would it be online. Um, that's when a lot of the restrictions were lifted. So it was a limited um, version. It was smaller than certainly we had done in years. But the attendance for the events last year, every single one broke records, um, which told us that people were certainly ready to be out and doing events. And, you know, one of the the sort of significance of our festival is that we are the first of the, obviously the new year starts in January, but we're one of the first outdoor events as the weather starts changing. And we really want to kick off spring and really kick off that time to remind people that they don't have to stay indoors all day and they don't have to avoid the rain um, and the typical Vancouver winter. Um, And I think that just all came together and it really taught us that there's a real need for the type of events that we put together And that has made us lean into, okay, we can grow this thing. We can uh, go back to the the size of the past and actually surpass that because we have to be able to match the numbers that arrived last year. Yeah. Did you think you were on track to perhaps surpass that this year? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, we're looking at, you know, Festival of Lights and sort of the other groups and people are able to maintain that. And I think that the big lesson that we took out of that is that, um, we started changing our, not, not changing our approach, but changing like, what we're going to lean into in terms of what the festival means. Um, we're really going to focus on what is it, you know, what were the mental health impacts of COVID? And so like, how can we bring people together in safe ways? How can we remind people that uh, they are part of a community? How can we connect them to other communities? Um, and certainly a lot of the story for a lot of us in lockdown, right? Like one of the things we could do was go outside and take walks and appreciate nature. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we can continue that relationship that people have with nature because we, we know that that has a significant mental health impact. And for sure. And seeing the cherry blossoms just makes, I think people feel so much better, right? Automatically. What kind of events does the festival put on, Michael? Yeah, the first event that we do every year is called The Big Picnic. Um, and it's an outdoor concert and picnic. We have lots of food trucks and, uh, you know, certainly like two different stages of music going on all day. Uh, that happens at David Lamb Park in Yaletown. Um, and so that this year will be um, April 1st, if all goes well. Um, and then uh, the other largest event is the Sakura Days Japan Fair. So we take over Van Dusen Botanical Garden for two days. Uh, this year, the plan is for the 15th and the 16th um, of April. And uh, that's a, again, it's a big food and culture festival, but all focused on Japanese culture. And so 
our entire festival is very multicultural, but that's the two days that we sort of take to appreciate and celebrate the culture that gave our city the cherry blossom um, and to you know let people know about the different ways that they can enjoy them. There's you know walks in the park to learn about the trees, but it's also about you know using that as the metaphor, right? So cherry blossoms, they're the, the sign that spring is here and that we're out of the winter, but they're also a reminder that these flowers only last for a few weeks. So like take a moment, pause, really appreciate what's around you and what's important to you in your life. And that is so true. And of course, an, a reminder here for people too, that the majority of what you put on is free. Absolutely. Yeah. So we do lots of free um, walks with experts and arborists, um, both from the city and from UBC and some other just um, experts that we bring in. Um, we do a big bike ride. The big picnic is totally free. Um, we do workshops teaching people haiku. So everything um, except for the Japan Fair um, is free. Okay, so and that's then really important to us. We is... want to make sure that it's um, open and accessible to everyone in the city. There's a lot of things that are expensive about living here, and so we don't true. want this to be one of those. That's what I was thinking, too. It is important to people, right? Because it's so accessible then. Okay, so then, Michael, once again, what is it that you need? You, you clearly need a big sponsor to step up. We do. I mean, that would be the ideal. I mean, I think and that's the most appealing thing, or we think that's the most appealing thing for a sponsor is if someone wants to come in and be the new presenting sponsor. Um, certainly, there's a lot of perks that come with that in terms of the, the ways we can collaborate to help them out as well. Um, but yeah, so we're looking to make up um, $80,000 and um, and maybe that's a combination of other sponsors as well who come, can come together. But um, yeah, so we're really sort of hitting the pavement and trying to see if there's anyone who is able to step up and who wants to be to help make sure that um, they can be connected to this uh, event that we think is pretty important to the city. All right. Well, we'll see what we can do. Hopefully we can uh, get some interest out there. Michael, thanks so much. Let us know what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone wants to reach me, um, my email address is on our website, which is vcbf.ca. So Vancouver Cherry Blossom Festival.ca. All right. Sounds good, Michael. Thank you and good luck. That yeah. is Michael Dove, the executive director of the Vancouver Cherry Blossom Festival. So all that news last week that you heard about the the big Metro Vancouver developer Coral Mandel Properties going into creditor protection. And yeah, there were lots of concerns about how that was going to impact the real estate market, especially if you have a pre-sale with them. Those are big concerns. And now these other ones too, because they were the major sponsor of the Vancouver Cherry Blossom Festival. And they found out on Thursday that, wait a minute, their big sponsor is not going to be able to live up to the commitment that they had set for this year. And that is impacting the festival in a big way. So they need a big sponsor to come on board and hopefully putting that out there. Maybe somebody will come forward and help them out with that. And we'll let you know what happens with that because who doesn't love the cherry blossoms and want to see more activities around that for springtime. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't think I could do this, but I know people who swear by it and absolutely love it. It's people who participate in what's called cold water immersion, or maybe you know it better as like having an ice bath. And I tell you, people who do it, they swear by it. They said it helps get them more energized. They claim it reduces inflammation. Uh, you've probably seen athletes do this. I know there's a lot of people on TikTok, celebrities in particular, who do these cold water baths. And people say it's intense, it's invigorating. But is it actually good for you? Like, what about your health? What about your heart health? 
does this actually make you healthier or could it be a detriment? So we want to talk about this. Are there any health benefits to actual cold water plunges? Well, Dr. Didrik Espelin studies this and joins us now, a professor of medical micro medical biology, I should say, at the UIT Arctic University of Norway's Institute of Health Sciences. Dr. Espelin, thank you for being here. Thank you. Good morning and uh, greetings from Norway. Oh, greetings. Thank you. Greetings from Canada. Uh, <laughs> both of these places are known to be quite cold sometimes, Dr. Espeland. How popular has this cold water immersion become, do you think? It's become quite popular, not only here in Norway, but uh, it seems like it's been quite popular uh, throughout the whole the Western Hemisphere, actually. So it's uh, quite uh, amazing to look at uh, what's happening and what is the, to yeah, the popularity. What is the thinking behind it? Like, why do you think people do this? Well, I'm not sure how it started. Um, there are many theories, but I think actually it's mostly because of all the claims. It started off by people claiming it was amazing and saying it's uh, good for your health. And uh, more and more um, uh, scientists have uh, looked into the research and uh, it looks like there are some um, benefits to it. So I think that helps. What kind of benefits are we talking about? Well, uh, we looked at a lot of studies uh, and papers on it. Uh, we went through 104 studies and um, uh, they were quite different. Uh, so they had uh, different kinds of uh, temperatures and um, uh, how long they were in, in the water. Um, but we saw some um, cardiovascular benefits uh, also um, uh, regarding uh, insulin and the diabetes uh, uh, sensitivity. Um, and well, several um, really um, um, beneficial uh, stuff. But um, the, the main thing that we found was interesting was the shift in fat m metabolism. Um, which we went, uh, in, we, we, we looked at it more thoroughly in the study, of course. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about shifting fat metabolism? Are you saying that cold water plunge will help you get rid of fat? Um, there is some um, studies suggesting that, yes. Um, we saw that we have two kinds of uh, fat. You have the white fat, which is, which is the one that is uh, pre preventing you from getting cold. It's more insulative. And you have a brown type of fat, which have some kind of uh, energy factories uh, that produce a little bit of uh, energy and also warmth. Uh, so we saw that um, people that do regular cold water plunges, they had a shift in, um, in the amount of brown fat which is, uh, it looks like it's beneficial for the fat metabolism and can also uh, reduce fats in, in a lot of people that do it regularly. Okay, well, when we when say do it, what does that mean exactly? Is that just jumping in and jumping out or do you have to stay <laughs> in the water? Like, what is that? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, and and we, we don't have a good answer uh, because uh, all of the studies that we looked into did it differently. Some uh, had a cold water uh, plunge for a, a couple of seconds or, or a little bit more, and some looked into more exercise in cold water for several minutes. 
So it's very um, difficult to address that properly. <laughs> now, what about this, the stress on the body this might pose, though, Dr. Espeland? Like, wouldn't it be mm-hmm. hard for your body to suddenly have that plunge in temperature? It is a stress to the body, yes. But there are indications that, um, uh, well, um, regular stress um, can cause a kind of body hardening which could uh, increase tolerance to stress also, which uh, is a positive health effect. Hmm, And um, regarding the hormonal uh, benefits also, you see an increase in some kind of uh, norepinephrine, which can uh, uh, elevate the pain, but also a reduction in uh, the stress hormone cortisol, which uh, causes uh, lowered uh, inflammation and uh, oxidative stress uh, in uh, in the body, which is also a benefit. So given the fact that this has become so popular, is this something that researchers like yourself are trying to figure out? Like, what is the definitive science on this? Uh, yes, um, it is something that, well, our conclusion is that we, <laughs> there is a lot of things that we need to go uh, more into because of the uh, uh, mostly because of all the differences in in the studies um, uh, done the nobody has a a um, uh, well, what's it, uh, hmm. uh, everybody does it differently so um, we would like somebody to look at it uh, throughout the scientific approach uh, which would uh, give better answers Right. So if you could tell me, like, okay, if you stay in the water for, you know, 30 seconds and that will give you all the benefits you need, then I might be willing to do it. (laughs) Well, I I cannot tell you that exactly, but um, we did see that some studies where people were only in the water for um, some uh, seconds also had some benefits. Uh, But um, exactly what benefits will will, that? you you will get from that kind of exposure is hard to say exactly. Right. But the good, I guess the good things that happen as a result of that, like how beneficial are the endorphins that are released? Um, Endorphins are good for many things. Uh, They can alleviate pain. Uh, They can uh, cause a sensation of well-being. Um, But um, that's not the, what we... We didn't see that that as as the best, uh, the most significant uh, benefit. Oh, what were the most significant benefits? Um, I I think one of the uh, most interesting findings were the um, um, reduction in insulin concentration and increased insulin sensitivity, which, uh, well, could be... uh, have some very very interesting clinical um, uh, positive uh, aspects. So that you're talking about potentially helping with diabetes control. Well, it might do that, yes, but it's very hard to um, uh, say it's um, with. Uh, yeah, it needs more research. <laughs> well, Doctor Esplin, in your research, then would you try it? Well, I've done it many times. I started uh, several years ago. So uh, I like um, doing it. I think it's a lot of fun. So uh, yeah. 
you think it's a lot of fun. But what about that moment right before you jump in? Don't you find that hard? <laughs> well, it's um, something you get used to. Um, so what we see is when you go into the cold water, you have a lot of different physiological responses in your body. And uh, some of them are um, fighting with each other to see if you're going to have a really, really stressful experience or a more calm experience. And what we see is that if you do it regularly, you will, well, you will have a reduced cold shock response and a better uh, experience doing it. Hmm. All right. How cold is it, by the way, when you jump in? Like, do you have a cold bath or do you just go jump in the ocean? Um, well, for me personally, uh, it really depends. I like running and then have a cold bath in, in the ocean and then run home. And uh, yeah, it's a good day. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's quite the routine you've got there. <laughs> Dr. Espelin, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're welcome. Uh, That is Dr. Didrik Espelin from the uh, Norway's Institute of Health Sciences talking about cold water immersion. This has become so popular. can't even tell you how often I see this now of people on social media or just articles about this. People who love it say that it improves their mood, their energy, weight loss, reduced inflammation, you name it. But is the science there? It sounds like not quite yet. But man, if it works for you, is this something that you would do? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. We'll check your traffic next.